You know, I've been asked, but drugs are bad, Dr. Jauncey. Wouldn't you say drugs are bad? My response is drugs are wonderful. Drugs are what saved my child when he had a very severe infection. Drugs are what allowed my child to have an anaesthetic when he broke a bone and needed to go um, and have surgery. Drugs are wonderful things. Drugs are medicines. Drugs are also things that most of us use. Drugs are the coffee we drink in the morning and drugs are the glass of wine that we have at night to relax. Drugs are anything which change the way we think, feel or act, but we've reserved this special vehement amount of hate for certain drugs and and people who use those certain drugs. That's Dr Marion Johnsey. She runs the Medically Supervised Injecting Centre based in King's Cross in Sydney, Australia. US President Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs in 1971. But by any measure, it's a war that nobody is winning. It's an unmitigated disaster. It's an unmitigated disaster what's happening across North America at the moment. To put it in context, in Australia at the moment, there's about three people dying every day of an accidental opiate overdose. Now, that's not all heroin. In fact, these days there's much more prescription opiates which are causing those deaths. But it's about three a day, and that is clearly three too many, and that's extraordinary. That's over a 1,000 people every year losing their life to an accidental overdose. In the United States of America, okay, their population is bigger, but it's not three people, not even 30 people. (laughs) It's 133 people. So what do you do if you want to create a different way to deal with drug use and address the harm that it can cause the person using drugs and those around them? Today on Changemakers, I'm here in Sydney Town Hall with an extraordinary story about drug law reform and a church. It's not a typical coupling. But here, for over 20 years, the Uniting Church has played a leading role in trying to minimise the harm that drugs can play in people's lives. And we aren't talking about timid support. I'm talking about embracing some of the most controversial, but also evidence-based forms of support. So why do they do it? And what have they achieved? Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We're supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Marion McConnell grew up in the country, in a place called Lithgow, a few hours west of Sydney. That's where she met her husband, Brian. They had three children. And after moving around a little, they settled in Canberra. When we moved to uh, Canberra, I didn't have a job. I had my three children and stayed home to look after them. I did a lot of um, voluntary work, um, especially around the schools and the church. Marion was part of the Uniting Church, a group of smaller Protestant churches that came together in the 1970s and today is the third largest church in Australia. The church was important to Marion. You meet with people in the like minds and I always enjoyed the, um, you know, the social justice side of the church, you know, the caring side of the church. But it wasn't just about being in the church. We must always, I think, connect with people 
in all walks of life, not just in our own circles. So I've always tried to, you know, um, to, to walk the path with all sorts of people. This story is about her eldest child. He did well at school. He often topped his class. He was good at um, mathematics. He was good at English. And I think sometimes he wasn't challenged. He played um, sport. He was very good at cross-country running. He won the ACT championships when he was 11. Um, He played soccer, um, music. He learned the organ. He enjoyed music. And then as he he got older, he... um, did cryptic crosswords and uh, played chess. Yeah, so he was, you know, he, he did a lot of different things and he was like most kids, I guess, as he grew up. But he was a very sensitive person. He had great gifts and at the same time, school was hard. He often got on his um, reports from school, the teachers would often give him an A for attainment and a C for effort. So he didn't always put in the effort that he could have, perhaps. But so he was in the top 9% in the Year 12 certificate and then he went on to university and got a degree in computer science. Um, I think he struggled. He didn't struggle with the ability to do it, but I, I think he was struggling a little bit during those years with, you know, trying to discover himself and so forth. So he was a pretty typical 20-something. He did enjoy computer work, so as a programmer. Um, so, but sometimes he talked about about the law. I mean, he wasn't settled in what he was doing. I don't think. I think he was still working it out. Then, in 1992, this happened. One night, um, we were awake, woken from our sleep in the early hours of the morning by a friend who said that our son was in trouble not far from where we lived. So we hurried down there and my daughter felt there was something urgently wrong, so she called an ambulance. And not lo- as we arrived, really, as we arrived, the ambulance did also. And our son was unconscious and the ambulance people were reviving him, and they told us that he'd overdosed on heroin. And that was a huge shock because it was the first we really knew about his heroin use. He was living at home and we didn't know. It might sound strange, but that's, that's the way it was. It was a shock, but it was also an answer. But, you know, we had some idea, well, I had some idea that he wasn't always happy. You know, there seemed to be something a bit amiss. And so in some ways I was relieved that this was, that we'd found his issue. And, and he was relieved that we, that we now knew and that we were there to help him and love him. But before they could begin to talk, the night turned. But unfortunately that night, before our son could speak to us really, um, the police also came and they, they questioned me like I was a criminal. I was really so shocked. While my son was lying there on the ground, 
could have been dying except for the help from the ambulance and they were questioning me questioning me they wanted to find out where our son had got the drugs and i hadn't even known he was using them but they followed him to the the ambulance took him to the hospital and he was quite happy to go to the hospital with the ambulance the police followed they went into his room we weren't allowed in there and they questioned him and trying to find out who who the dealer was. And of course, that frightened him because if he told them who the dealer was, he could have got bashed up or anything could happen. After extensive questioning, the police retreated. So he discharged himself and came home with us that night. And we talked for hours. And he was, as I said, he was relieved that that we could now talk about things and we could help him and that we had we didn't we didn't um, shun him or, or or try to punish him we just wanted to care care about him but it wasn't over but he was still afraid of the police and in a few days he took himself off on a holiday to get away for a while he rang me the, the first night and said that he'd had a, a good drive and the car went well because his father had helped him fix that before he went. And um, that was the last I heard from our son. The next was a phone call from police to say our son had overdosed and died. Alone this time, no one to call an ambulance. Only days after her son's death, Marion and her husband Brian had to prepare his funeral. They met with the minister from the Uniting Church. When the minister arrived at our home, one of the first things he said was, what do you want me to tell people about your son's death? And, you know, that's because of the um, the indoctrination we've had over people who use drugs, you know, that you don't want to be associated with such people. And, you know, us being, a, 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 well, a good upstanding family in the community, really, my husband and I, was still married, um, you know, after 30-odd years or whatever it was at that stage. And so, you know, the minister obviously just said, what do you want me to tell people? What happened to your son? And, you know, I was just wondering, heck, what am I going to say here? And my husband just spoke out pretty much straight away and just said, tell the truth. And I thought, Isn't that wonderful that he said that? Marion and Brian did what many in their situation were scared to do. They confronted what happened to their son, and in doing so, it begged the question, how could this have been prevented? For the police, the death of Marion's son was just another number on the daily tally of fatal overdoses. For politicians, it didn't even register. It got worse. By 1999, there were 1,740 deaths in Australia from heroin overdose. While these deaths were happening everywhere, the most deaths happened in a place called King's Cross in Sydney. King's Cross in the late 1990s was actually, it was pretty edgy. It was busy, it was loud, it was sometimes a little bit scary and... Basically, the streets were awash with heroin, is, is the reality. Marion Johnson got her first job as a doctor in King's Cross. She was looking for a role where she could help people in a different kind of way. 
it was a friend who actually ripped out an ad that they'd seen in the newspaper and sent it to me and said, hey, Em, I think this suits you. And it said, um, flexible and eclectic approach needed to work with vulnerable populations in King's Cross. Working in King's Cross led to a fast learning curve for a young woman who had grown up in a fairly sheltered middle-class family. And I would have prided myself as always being somebody who would have been gentle, Um, but I don't think I had any understanding really of what life was like for somebody that was living on the streets or dependent on, on various substances. She soon gained a new perspective. There were certainly times back then and continuing to this day where I realised the words there but for the grace of God go I. Now I'm not somebody who goes to church but those words particularly resonate I think because you would hear repeatedly some horrific, desperately sad, outrageous stories of human existence from people talking about their childhood. You know, and it occurred to me more than once If that stuff had happened to me, I would be somebody who would turn to drugs as a means of coping or a means of escaping. But Marion's clients weren't just vulnerable. With the heroin crisis, they were dying. The people that I would see, I knew that it would only be another month or two before I'd hear about another person dying, sometimes less than that, sometimes a matter of weeks. Within 200 metres of where this service is now situated, at least twice a day, on average every 12 hours, round the clock, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, an ambulance was attending an accidental heroin overdose. By 1999, it was at breaking point. There was a death every week in this local neighbourhood. The shock jocks and right-wing tabloid press were building a familiar narrative in response. Prevailing sentiment was, if you're using illegal drugs, well, you've created your own problem. You're the, the cause of your own demise. Don't expect us and the government and taxpayers' fund, you know, taxpayers' money to pick up the pieces. You didn't have to use illegal drugs. You made a choice. It reached an apex at the beginning of 1999. You know, there was more deaths from accidental heroin overdose than there was from car accidents. And so it was leading to a conversation And so in 1999, when we had the front page photo in the Sun-Herald in January and a headline that said, we give our kids heroin injecting kits instead of help. Now the health minister admits it's wrong. That was the the front page headline emblazoned across the Sun-Herald. And I I don't know, I don't think anybody back then could have really foreseen where that was going to go. A state election was only months away. The leader of the government, Premier Bob Carr, had to respond. The Premier at the time, Bob Carr, in a response to that front page article, said, we need to do something different. And so if I'm re-elected in May, I will hold a drug summit and we will invite people from around the country. We will invite the experts, the researchers, the doctors, the nurses, the counsellors, the social workers... We'll invite the researchers, the policymakers, we will invite the families and we will invite the people who use drugs and affected by drugs and we will all come together and have a conversation. Instead of giving in to the narrative from the tabloid press, the government created an opportunity to move the debate in a different direction. Bob Carr was re-elected and plans began for a May drug summit. People who supported a new approach to drugs started to organise. One supporter was Reverend Ray Richmond from the Wayside Chapel. 
It's part of the broader Uniting Church. Wayside Chapel was based in King's Cross, on the front line of the heroin crisis. Ray Richmond was one of the church's most provocative leaders at the time, at least according to Reverend Simon Hansford, the Uniting Church's current leader. Um, And Ray was one of those guys who engaged and called a spade a spade, and, and in the best sense of the word, he was a pain in the neck. But that's what we need. Ray Richmond wasn't going to let the opportunity of the drug summit pass by. So in the weeks before the drug summit, he did what any good reverend would do. He created a heroin injecting centre inside his church. Well, sort of. He'd read about heroin injecting centres in Europe. Local doctors in King's Cross had been talking about setting up something similar here for years. Even the police agreed a different approach was needed. The idea was to provide a safe space for heroin users to inject where there were doctors on staff who could keep people alive if required. Ray thought it was perfect for King's Cross. So he wrote to the church to let them know that he planned to run a supervised injecting room for a day. You know, like a media stunt, to show what it would be like. Harry Herbert, the head of the church's social service arm, Uniting Care, was in the meeting that received Ray's letter. The Reverend Norman MacDonald was the secretary and he he presented this letter from Ray... The head of finance and property didn't like it at all. He said, oh, the insurance people won't be happy with this. And I remember that Norman, who wasn't an adventurous man generally, said, well, Jim, he was the head of finance and property. Jim, we can't let the insurers run the church. And uh, and so Ray got a sort of half blessing from the church, not permission, but no one was going to interrupt what he was going to do. So Wayside Chapel ran the first medically supervised injecting centre in King's Cross for a day. But not everyone in the church liked Ray Richmond's civil disobedience. Another minister of the Uniting Church, the Reverend Fred Nile, who who later on left the Uniting Church, but at that time he was a minister of the Uniting Church, he got the local police commander to arrest the Reverend Ray Richmond for doing something illegal. But the civil disobedience had achieved its goal. An injecting room was now on the public agenda. But there was still a problem. When the Premier opened the drug summit, he was pretty clear that he opposed an injecting centre. He actually, at the beginning, was not a supporter. Could the drug summit be a space that could change his mind? Harry Herbert was there. Well, it was an unusual sort of event. There were various people from community groups who, who were there and both people who were for um, changing uh, the laws and establishing an injecting centre and also people who were totally against it. There was something special about the space of a drug summit. It slowed things down. Front page headlines weren't as influential as all the people in the room. The experts. But even more importantly, families who'd been affected by drug use. The Premier started to shift, and he brought the public along with him. They could see somebody grappling with a really thorny topic and, you know, learning and developing and and changing his thinking. And I think most people acknowledge it's okay to change your mind if you learn new information. By the end, 
the Premier changed his mind. Remarkably, the summit recommended the establishment of a trial medically supervised injecting centre, amongst a long list of other proposals. But there was a condition. Government wanted it to be at arm's length. They didn't want a government health service being seen to run a supervised injecting facility. They had a victory, but with conditions. They quickly identified that King's Cross would be the best place for the injecting centre, not only because of the heroin crisis, but because most residents supported it. And the government thought they'd found a good partner, the Sisters of Charity who ran the local St Vincent's Hospital. St Vincent's had been on the ground for decades, and Dr Alex Wodak, the director of their alcohol and drug service, was ready to play a leading role to make an injecting centre work. But there was a problem. Or perhaps you could call it divine intervention. And then, of course, the Vatican stuck a dirty great spanner in the works by saying that the Sisters of Charity were not allowed to run the centre. Harry Herbert ran Uniting Care, the very large social service arm of the Uniting Church. He was a fighter for justice from way back. My grandfather was a union organiser, um, so the family had a bit of history in that. When I was a student, I was involved in the Vietnam moratorium marches and uh, the campaign against uh, apartheid. He took that iconoclasm into the church. The teachings of Jesus, it's because of the concept of love and uh, humanity in the Christian scriptures. All of that is what makes it so important. And I think underneath most Christians are, uh, are political. It's just that some are on the right wing and some are on the left wing. I was on the left wing. By the late 1990s, Harry was a public figure in the media. He was well-respected as a social justice advocate. He knew most of the politicians and was considered a bit of a player. He attended the drug summit and was pleased with its outcomes. They, they called it a safe injecting room at the time. And to me, that was a good result. And I didn't think we'd be any more involved than that. So somewhat harmlessly, after the Sisters of Charity had been forced to abandon running the injecting centre, he was having a chat on ABC Radio about the issue. So in November 1999, I was at Sydney Airport on my way to, uh, to Tamworth, I think it was. Uh, Sally Lone was then an announcer on the uh, ABC Radio and she phoned me and said, well, would, would you... Uh, run it. Uniting Care, would you run the centre? To which I said, oh, yeah, we'd, we'd think about it, yeah, positively. Marion Jauncey remembers parts of the conversation. Well, you know, we're a church. At some level, we, be- you know, basically said we believe in the sanctity of human life. And yes, if this is going to save people's lives, of course, of course we're interested. Harry thought it was just another hypothetical media conversation, nothing more. He then got on the plane to take his one-hour trip to Tamworth in regional New South Wales. And uh, when I got off the plane at Tamworth, I remember that I had the largest number of phone messages on my phone that I have ever had before or thereafter. Everyone had called. Senior ministers from the government were desperate to find out whether he would follow through on his statement. Public servants were curious to explore what it might practically look like. And he got more than a few calls from inside the church. What the hell had he just done? The ABC interview quickly created a process. The church had to work this idea through, and it would be hard. After all, it was a broad church. 
There were plenty of Conservative members concerned about the idea of setting up a centre for heroin users to safely inject. The government might have had a summit and the press might have shifted, but this was now the church offering to run this. Is this what a church is meant to do? Reverend Simon Hansford, the now moderator of the Uniting Church, was on the committee that was going to decide what happened. And I remember this painful, wonderful conversation where the conservative elements of the church and the, and the progressive elements of the church were engaged in this heated conversation about should we do this thing or not? And I want to say my memory of it is, is one of those great moments in the life of the church where one of the more conservative guys and younger guys got up and said, you know, I don't agree with this, but he said, I've heard convincing arguments about this, so if God's in this it'll be okay. And if God's not in it, it'll fall over. So I'm prepared to give this my, my go-ahead. And so we went from being a divided room to being a united room. And my memory of it is, I think, I think we had either had unanimity or almost unanimity on going ahead. Unanimity? Sorry, unanimity? What's happened here? Let's just backtrack again. King's Cross is having a drug crisis. The church was engaged a bit, locally. A few went to the drug summit. Then a few months later, based on a question posed by a journalist, the church was set to be running Australia's and one of the world's first medically supervised injecting centres. This was a massive leap. But no pressure. Making the injecting centre work would simply be a test of their eternal vigilance. To help make it easier, they hired someone with a lot of experience. Well, Ingrid Van Beek, and, and I would say that the appointment of her as the first medical director was an inspired decision. When it came to harm reduction, Ingrid Van Beek was the go-to person in King's Cross. She had visited most of the injecting centres around the world. She'd spent years campaigning for the creation of the centre and had been a senior doctor in the Cross for decades. Step one, done. Next, they needed a place to house the centre get a licence, and a licence over a particular property. And that proved not to be an easy task. At the beginning, finding a space didn't look hard. They'd been given a long list of places from the Sisters of Charity. So of the 42 suggestions that St Vincent's had in their folder, none of them were any good because none of the owners were prepared to be part of it. There was one suggestion which was ruled out by the police commissioner because he said the owner of the property had some criminal associations. So, and finding a property in King's Cross that the owner didn't have criminal associations was no easy, easy matter. Eventually, they found a location. But finally, there was a unused property at 66 Darlinghurst Road, which had been established as a pinball parlour, but hadn't been successful. And it was owned half by Channel 9 and half by uh, Greater Union Theatres. And uh, so we approached them and here they were, they had a property they couldn't use. To get it, they needed a sublease, but the owner wasn't keen. He thought it would give him a bad reputation amongst his business associates in King's Cross. He made a suggestion that I come to a meeting of the King's Cross Chamber of, of, of Commerce and Tourism and address the assembled multitude and convince them. 
which of course I stupidly did and uh, was a complete flop. I mean, no way did I convince any of them. Uh, he was there and he said, I asked him later, I said, George, how do you think I w- went? And he put his thumbs down. Local support started slipping away. The local police came out against them. There was a brief reprieve when the government helped to sort out some of the issues. But then the local Chamber of Commerce took them all to court. Which delayed our opening and uh, went to the Supreme Court of New South Wales. The hearings took time. There were appeals. Eventually, the church won. And for good measure, Harry Herbert pursued the chamber for costs. The costs ended up being 30000 I think, and we pursued them, I particularly pursued them over that, and took them and, and had them made bankrupt. And uh, I think I got $20 and a, an old filing cabinet out of it. And, uh, but the, nevertheless, it was the end of that organisation. Yeah, wow. The score so far, God won, Chamber of Commerce, zero. With a space secure, they opened their doors at 6pm on Sunday the 6th of May, 2001. So how does a medically supervised injecting centre work? There are three stages. Stage one is registration. We will register you with the service and like any other health service, there'll be a series of questions that we go through. They then get buzzed into stage two. Stage two is actually the supervised injecting room itself. There are eight stainless steel booths where up to two people can sit at a time. So at any one time you can have up to 16 people who are self-administering. We provide the clean injecting equipment and then people take a seat. Then people move to the final section. So in stage three, after the injection, is actually one of the most important areas and probably my sort of favourite space in a way of the centre. It's known as the aftercare area or the the chill-out room. And that's where we encourage people to sit and and hang out for a bit. So it might be that they just want to have a tea or coffee. It might be that they want to read the paper and do the crossword. So it might be that the first few conversations we have with somebody are about the weather or about their earrings or about what's going on in the paper today. And if we get a sense that that's all people are ready to talk about, that's fine. But what we've learned is that If you gradually gain somebody's sense of trust and then the next time you talk about them, they go, oh, yeah, they didn't treat me badly and they were, you know, they were polite or they were... You you get a, a therapeutic relationship with somebody and that's what's crucial. That's actually what makes this place so special. So we're known for room number two or stage number two, which is where the drug injecting takes place. But actually what's the most crucial aspect of this service is room number three, which is where the connection takes place. No one has ever died of an overdose at the centre, even though there have been 7,000 overdoses. And that's despite a lot of traffic, with over 160 people using the space every day. Having a medically supervised injecting centre is huge. But at another level, It should have been only just the start. There was something else that was discussed at the drug summit. Interestingly, if you go back and look at those resolutions, all of which were acted upon, all of which were responded to, all of which led to significant positive change except one. There was one resolution that never happened And that was a recommendation to remove criminal sanctions for the use and possession of drugs. So it kind of feels like um, we've got a little bit of unfinished business. 
in New South Wales. That was the 1999 drug summit. And that was the one thing that couldn't be done. Back in a moment. Building power to change the world is a dynamic process, which means it's always helpful to discuss your strategies and refine them. Pick apart what's going right and reflect on how you could be more effective. That's why we've set up the Changemakers Masterclasses. They're small seminars with a maximum of 50 people, presented by me, Amanda Tattersall. We spend a whole day taking a deep dive into one aspect of changemaking. In the first season, we're looking at power, how to build it, wield it, as well as examining the best and worst practices from around the world. We're holding the first ones in Australia in February 2019 in association with Sydney University's Policy Lab. And then we're heading to Melbourne and several cities in the US and the United Kingdom later in the year. So check out the schedule at changemakerspodcast.org masterclasses and sign up today. Maximise your impact with Changemakers Masterclasses. Since the death of her son, Marion McConnell's life changed. Well, I guess in some ways I didn't choose it, did I? I mean, it was thrust upon me, one might say. I certainly didn't choose that I lost a son to drugs. And I often wonder now what my life would have been if that hadn't happened, if my son was still here. So it wasn't a road I chose, but it was a road that I felt um, I was compelled to go down. The the injustice, the, the, the complete and utter injustice of these prohibition drug laws, that's, that's really what's driven me. Her son was treated like a criminal and that contributed to his death. That night on the Oval, I just knew immediately that this wasn't right. What was happening here was not right. There should not have been involvement of the police. Marion and her now late husband, Brian, turned themselves into changemakers. They formed a group called Families and Friends for Drug Reform. Their experience made them quite radical in their policy demands. Prohibition was more the problem than, you know, it was more the problem than what the drugs were themselves. Prohibition, the issue that remained outstanding after the drug summit. These families' experiences attested to this failing. Marion and Brian got organised, particularly in the church. We did a lot of talks around different, went to different congregations speaking, telling our story and talking about prohibition and the problems it causes. But it wasn't easy. Their son died in 1992. Two decades later, there still have been no significant changes at a policy level. They struggled to get support from the church too. It was a... A hard road and um, very depressing at times, I guess, because it seemed to be so difficult to get a story across. You know, you felt very down a lot of the time, but you always, there was always that belief that what we were doing was right. But then something changed. In late 2015, 23 years after she began her campaign, Marion received a call to come and make a presentation in Sydney at an important church meeting. In the lead-up, congregations from Canberra had galvanised around the issue of drug law reform. At the time, the moderator of the Uniting Church, Myung Hua Park, was from Canberra 
and she encouraged her group to push the issue across the Uniting Church as a whole. I think she was allowed to come and present because of the, the, the moderator and the CEO that we had at that time, that there was an interest and a sense that this is, this is important. The CEO that Dr Marion Jauncey is referring to is Peter Warland. Peter had succeeded Harry Herbert as the head of the church's social service arm, now called Uniting. He was a radical, in the radical tradition of the church. They could significantly change the social structure, social arrangements of the society based on the very, uh, very basic and pure understanding of what Jesus of Nazareth said when he said, you know, we should be helping those who are the least of these in our community. And drug addicts, as I saw them, were very much the least of these. So I was galvanised behind this particular campaign. Peter created a Wilstrom when he entered Uniting. He pushed people to think big on the issue of drug reform. So I raised it with them and with others and with Marion saying, we can't just keep doing what we've done. Well, like we've already been, you've been a success at that. No deaths, 15 years, fantastic. But where's that taking, where's that taking the whole community with this lesson? What can we politically do? What can we do to change the thinking of the population? Changing drug policy wasn't an abstract concept for Peter. Why are you prepared to, to push the church to take more political risk on this difficult because issue? Because a member of my family nearly died. And um, I thought it was time for me to pull my finger out. And instead of just riding on Harry's coattails and the good things that he'd done, we had to do something to significantly change the way in which um, drugs, illicit drugs, are managed in our community. That's why. Drug reform wasn't about giving charity to some objectified poor person. This issue was alive in so many families. Marion and Brian had bravely begun advocating for drug decriminalisation. The movement had grown. Now they had the help of leaders who understood, like Peter Warland. They were part of a church long engaged in drug reform. Maybe something new could begin. When Marion came to the church meeting in Sydney, her experience and her years of campaigning were evident. Marion Jauncey remembers. I listened to what she had to say, and but she was very clear um, that, you know, even back then, we needed a whole-scale, you know, reform and change. But passion isn't enough to create power. At that point, so this would have been 2015, I was not expecting that to go anywhere, if I'm honest. She wasn't the only one. Marion McConnell talked to Peter Walland after the meeting. And I said to her, we will raise this up. And I don't think she believed me. But afterwards, things started to happen. Only weeks after the meeting, Dr Marion Jauncey was asked to write a paper on drug policy for the Uniting Church Synod. It included all the usual stuff about funding for treatment, but it also called for decriminalisation. Was something shifting? That paper would be the basis of a policy that would be submitted to the Uniting Church Synod. But the question was, would it get support? I remember saying, Peter... Don't be upset when we only get one recommendation through. I'm not expecting to get anything through from a church on decriminalisation, you know. Um, This is a progressive church. Um, 
you know, look at what's happening around, you know, gay marriage. Things do happen slowly and that's okay. So don't be distressed. Peter was not only passionate, he was an organiser. We'd gone to a lot of work to ensure that the key leaders understood exactly what they were voting for. The Synod meeting was set for April 2016. Over 400 church leaders from around the state of New South Wales would be there. The plan was for Marion McConnell and Dr Marion Jauncey to address the meeting. So Marion and I presented and we each had a very, you know, down to the second, we had a certain number of, you know, minutes that we were allowed to talk. So we each presented, but there wasn't even allowed really time for, I think we had two questions maybe, so it was quite quick. Peter's anxiety was about how the motion would be received. Would it be seen as a discussion on an issue about drug policy or would it be seen as a debate about the role of the church more broadly? Howard, our Prime Minister, once said to us, you know, the churches have got a place. They should stay in their place. And we in politics have got another place and we should look after policy. Well, that's rubbish. The people should have a view and the people need to be educated to a view and stimulated and fermented, and that's what the church is really good at. But would that argument about the role of the church end up in this debate? Yes, there are a lot of speeches, and the normal people um, uh, that we thought would particularly older men from the country would say what they would say, but none none of them used the John... I was most worried about the John um, Howard argument... They, they went to points of particularity about um, what happens if this and if that and if the next thing. Of course, they're beautifully handled by the experts who we had there. So they didn't go to the broader question of what's the role of the church. After its allocated time, the meeting moved on. The vote would happen the next day. Dr Marion Jauncey remembers Peter Warland promising to send her a text message when the vote was in. Peter was in the room. I did not expect it to get through. I was astounded when some of the very socially conservative voted as one. 400 hands nearly in the air in favour of decriminalisation. This is not, there is not, to my knowledge, no mainstream church in the world has taken such a radical view. So my radical Christ inside my heart was absolutely screaming with pleasure that we were, we were en route with this. This is, this is what we're here to do. Peter messaged Marion. They had won. Marion replied. And I was terribly inappropriate because I just wrote back and said, shit, really? <laughs> and then thought, oh, that would be the CEO of Uniting, perhaps not the person that you quite want to be sending a test message that says, shit, really. And I couldn't believe it. You could not... I, I was smiling, I was awed, I was, I just, speechless. I was speechless. And there's still part of me to this day that just wants to wander around and shake those people's hands and say, you know, in a few days, you got something that the rest of us have been trying to convince society on for years. Wow. And, and I don't know... You know, was it their Christian faith? Was it this focus on the on on people and life and well-being and and flourishing communities? Was it? I, I don't know what it was. I don't. I don't. 
I don't know quite what miracle happened that it that it got through first time, but it did. Following the Synod, Uniting believed that the policy couldn't be just words on paper. They needed to make decriminalisation happen. They began to assemble a staff team and a network of allies that could prosecute a campaign. One of the team members was Bronwyn Senek. The Fair Treatment Campaign was started by Uniting with a specific focus of changing the drug laws within New South Wales and ACT, um, as well as destigmatizing people who use drugs within um, the community. So really understanding um, that people who use drugs need uh, a social and health focus rather than a criminal one. They are taking it pretty seriously. In October 2018, 2,000 people came to Sydney Town Hall for the launch. For Marion McConnell, the church's embrace of this issue has been surreal. All, all I was really after was that the church would support others that were trying to bring about change. Like if some organisation or person came out with a statement that said something like, you know, um, we need to change these laws. So what came out of it in the end was extraordinary. It made her reconceive what was possible. It took me back to the days when we worked so hard to um, um, set up forums for speakers on issues around prohibition. And we'd be overjoyed if we got 100 people at our ACT assembly. And I'm looking around at that crowd of 2,000 at the Sydney um, Town Hall and thinking, wow, you know, we have come a long way. And this is all because of our uniting church. The church. This campaign spoke to what the modern church should be. At a time where churches around the world were losing their relevance, or worse, being found to be the cause of abuse, this campaign offered a different path for the church. The Uniting Church's challenge has always been, we can't just preach the gospel, we actually have to live it. There's a, a quote attributed to St Francis that says, be always preaching the gospel and if necessary, use words. This is our core business. Our core business is the least of these and everyone's got one in every family. This is not something that happens to other people. This is not about empty platitudes about family values. This is about caring for real families that actually exist. It's to do things which are radical and different and lead the society, the community in which we live on the most difficult issues, particularly as they relate to people who have been subjugated, devalued and put down. The least of these. I didn't have to go far. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes and to catch up on the stories from Season 1. Season 3 will be out in May 2019 and we still plan to release a bunch of Changemaker chats, interviews with amazing Changemakers from time to time across the year. Changemakers is produced and written by me. Our writing team also includes Charles Firth, David Hunt and Amy Farrell. Our audio producers are Jules Wookerer and Alex Cake. Our sponsoring organisation is Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. 
Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by Uniting, The Sunrise Project, Australian Marriage Equality and the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. You'll find all the details on our website.